This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. the big picture of maintaining health. And this is a talk that um, I'm really happy to present because uh, I think it's a, a very important area and uh, we need to all focus on uh, maintaining health throughout our lives, not only as um, young people, but also as we get older. Um, my objectives through this talk today is to have you appreciate the importance of exercise and healthy diet in maintaining health. Also, uh, I'd like you to be able to make informed decisions about getting a particular screening test and appreciate the changes uh, that happens to our body uh, as we get older and how they affect medications and metabolism in general, and also to understand the meaning of home safety and um, the importance of really maintaining health throughout lives um, and uh, maintaining functional status. When did we start? Um, I guess a lot of us, um, or some of us, have read the epics of uh, Gilgamesh, um, that was written about 5,000 years ago. And essentially, uh, if some of you know the story, um, Gilgamesh was uh, seeking the uh, essence of life, and when he found it, um, he took it and uh, uh, stayed it with him, but uh, as he fell asleep, uh, a snake came and stole it and um, never found it again. So I think today we are all seeking to find this snake that stole this essence of life. These are some possible scenarios for future morbidity and mortality. The first one presents really um, the current scenario. As we see, most of us um, get an onset of an illness, um, that's a long, I mean, a chronic illness at around the age of 55. Let it be coronary artery disease or renal disease or diabetes. And we usually tend to live with this illness until the onset of death. Um, future models, um, the one model is actually by extending life, so we still uh, may have the onset of illness around the same time, but we just live with it longer. And that we can, can be achieved essentially by medications and um, certain tests. Uh, however, what we are trying to achieve, uh, hopefully, is to shift the entire curve to the right. And by doing so, uh, we delay the onset of an illness um, by a um, few years, hopefully. And by doing so, we live a healthier life longer. And by that, hopefully, we can also extend life. And um, I, this is really my, the perfect model, I say, is to compress the morbidity. It's by, by that, essentially, um, trying to have the onset of illness at a much later years in life and then to live with it much less. So having better quality of life overall. Um, I'd like to emphasize to all of you that the geriatric population, the elderly population, is a very, very diverse group of people. Um, you may see the 85-year-old person uh, who is jogging on the street and a 60-year-old person who is essentially disabled and frail and um, uh, cannot really perform much. The main distinguishing factors um, in this diverse group is the functional status. Um, and I would really like you to all um, pay a lot of attention to this. So um, functional status is, is really of a paramount importance in maintaining a person's health and um, quality of life. 
uh, another thing that determines um, how a person is doing is essentially uh, the presence of comorbid conditions. What I, what I mean by that is um, the presence of either coronary artery disease or diabetes, um, renal disease, lung disease. That also impacts the person's uh, not only survival but also quality of life and also the presence or absence of a geriatric syndromes. And what I be, mean by geriatric syndromes, um, essentially um, uh, and illnesses that are specific to the geriatric populations, which include either urinary or stool incontinence, mild cognitive impairment, dementia, depression, and functional um, decline or um, lack of ability to do uh, basic activities of daily living. This is a slide. Um, it's not meant to be um, dealt with in great detail, but what I wanted to emphasize through this slide is that um, um, this was a study actually done at the Eastern East Boston Senior Center, where they looked at actually more than uh, 5,000 uh, men and women, and um, they gave them essentially questionnaires and asked them to rate their health condition on a four-point scale from excellent to good, poor, fair, and poor. And they followed those patients for a few years, and they looked at their survival rate. And so patients who rate their health as excellent um, if they were on a 65-year-old, they actually had a survival uh, rate of a person who was 58, meaning they actually, their physiologic age essentially was an age of a 58-year-old person, you know, as opposed to 65. And this was actually very true across the board. Um, so a person who rated their health as poor, they had a survival rate of a 73-year-old um, if they were 65. So this, was, this is the chronologic age of the person and this is what we call the, the physiologic age, meaning how long they survived based on their uh, rating. So um, this is very interesting because I think it reflects that if you have a state, if you, um, your state of mind um, really does matter in um, your survival. So it is very important to have a healthy outlook and uh, um, have a good perception of your health. Um, there are three main players in health and illness, um, lifestyle, genetic factors, and environmental factors. Um, I guess we have very little control, or no control, over genetic factors. That's what we were born with. Um, we have very little right now control over environmental factors. Hopefully, um, in the future, there will be more alert awareness of what's going on. And then we have some control over lifestyle, and that's what I'm going to try to talk about tonight. So, I'm just going to give you some statistics. Um, actually, less than half the United States uh, populate adult um, exercise adequately. And what we say by adequate exercise is essentially exercise that would be cardioprotective uh, cardio um, in general. And then about more than a quarter of the U.S. population doesn't even do any exercise. Um, again, there, uh, about two-thirds of the United States population, adult population is either overweight or obese. And as we know, currently smoking is the leading cause of death. However, um, if the current trends continue, um, obesity will soon be the leading cause of death. Um, so why should we care? This was actually a research, um, this was a statement made by researchers at the Center of Disease Control and Prevention. And they found that about half of all deaths in the United States can be attributable to uh, preventable illnesses and, uh, or preventable behaviors. And those, are, those behaviors are essentially diet, obesity, lack of exercise, and tobacco use. So this is the current uh, leading cause of, causes of death in um, 
women. And if, as you see, actually, cardiovascular disease remains to be the leading cause. However, we're actually probably seeing the, a significant decline in the um, cardiovascular disease on, uh, incident with mortality. And um, the second line represents um, uh, incident of cancer, uh, I mean, sorry, cancer in general, overall cancer, as lead, uh, second leading cause of death. And then the third line represents stroke, fourth line represents uh, chronic pulmonary diseases, and the last represents Alzheimer's disease. And this is in women. Um, for men, it's about the same, uh, with the exception um, of um, pulmonary problem, acute pulmonary illnesses as being the fifth leading cause of death. Um, so what's a healthy lifestyle? Um, it's a difficult question to challenge, but I believe um, maintain healthy social uh, life with family, friends, grandchildren, be active every day, um, eat well, avoid tobacco and excess alcohol intake, follow up on periodic health examination and screening tests. Those are essentially um, key components into maintaining healthy lifestyle. Um, the, main, the first three points, actually, that w uh, it's interesting because there was a recent study um, done, um, published in um, um, National Geographic, which looked at three different communities, uh, one in Italy, one in Japan, and one in the United States. And they looked at, um, those three communities had the um, uh, special thing where uh, most people in that community lived up on average about 10 years more than an av the average population. And so they looked at what's special in those communities. And the three things that were common to those communities were those three top things. Um, so uh, people stayed very busy with their family and friends. They really rated their family and friends as being the most important thing in their lives. And they remained very active, whether it's working in the backyard um, or enjoying um, um, your um, um, carpentry work or um, any kind of activity that you actually um, make you busy and stay with, and then eating well. So they all had um, either a local garden that they grew their food in, or they just bought um, healthy vegetable and food and cooked it at their home. And so it's, I think it does um, merit to actually look at these things and uh, consider it um, as you're looking at for a healthy lifestyle. And definitely avoiding tobacco and, alcohol and excess alcohol is really also another important aspect that um, we need to emphasize as they both have um, detrimental effects on several organ function. Now, um, my talk is going to be broken up into small segments, so my apologies if I'm going to be flying through them. So the first area that I'd like to address is exercise. And when I, what I mean by exercise is not necessarily the exercise that makes you uh, do um, press, bench pressing or lifting, you know, uh, heavy weight. Um, it's um, essentially um, a two component. Um, there is an aerobic and anaerobic exercise. And aerobic exercise is known to have a cardioprotective effect. And, um, and then the anaerobic exercise actually is proven to be effective in muscle um, building and um, um, gait training and uh, balance. So we'll just talk about the role of exercise in general and how it, um, so these are some studies that actually have looked at exercise and its effect on um, heart disease, on diabetes, blood pressure, muscle function, um, and other aspects. So um, in general, 
uh, actually through randomized studies, exercises have been shown to decrease both the primary and secondary risk factors for coronary artery disease. Uh, when I say primary and secondary, if someone does not have a coronary artery disease or heart disease, uh, they are less likely to develop it if they are exercising regularly. Uh, same thing if someone does have a heart disease, um, they are less likely to deteriorate if they continue on a regular exercise regimen. It's also uh, shown to delay the onset of diabetes and improves glycemic control. So if there is anyone among you today who has diabetes, I recommend that after you have your dinner tonight, um, take a walk for, or do a, a 15 minute brisk walk uh, and then check your sugar prior to the walk and then after the walk and you will see, see about 10 point drop in your, or 20 point drop in your blood sugar. And that's actually a significant um, um, drop because it does overall improves um, the glycemic control and if you continue on it regularly, it does help um, um, uh, diabetes in general um, and even prevent it from happening. It also enhances uh, muscle function and physical performance in the elderly, and um, that's in particular um, uh, uh, resistant type of exercises. So if a person does weightlifting, what I mean by that is lifting about three or four pounds, uh, no more than 10 pounds at a time, and um, uh, so a gallon of milk will be sufficient to do that um, you know, for a, uh, 40 minutes a day, uh, 40 minutes, uh, yeah, a day. Um, can either break it down into a small um, intervals will be fine. Um, uh, again, it also reduces the risk of fall and um, osteoporosis and a fracture. Um, essentially, um, if you, uh, the, the specific exercises actually that um, does that are the ones that uh, concentrate on balance and um, um, uh, muscle strengthening, um, and those are, um, so examples of those kind of exercises like Tai Chi and uh, yoga type of exercises that will help actually in this area. It also found that exercise alleviates depression and enhances mood and also it, it does improve cognitive function. Um, so um, the reason it may help in those areas, um, especially with depression and mood, is because there is a, a release of endorphin uh, as we are exercising and that has a... Um, uh, some uh, mood-enhancing um, effect. Um, so the rules of exercise. Um, I always say, do an exercise, an exercise that you enjoy. So whether it's swimming, uh, biking, brisk walking, um, weightlifting, anything that you actually uh, enjoy, that way you will invest the time in doing it. And then also listen to your body. Um, what I mean by listening to your body, if this is your first time going out and exercising, I suggest that you actually um, probably have a health checkup by your primary care physician just to make sure that you are actually fit to the exercise. And also, always start um, with a very low intensity exercise and build your um, level of um, exercise slowly. Um, that's also important. Um, also, don't go out and just uh, do heavy weight lifting right away because that could actually cause trauma to your body. Um, and so the current recommendations, essentially, um, for cardiovascular type of exercise, which we talked about aerobic type of exercise, um, it's a moderate 60 minute uh, exercise per day. That could be actually break, broken down into uh, 10 or 20 minute intervals. So as opposed to doing a 60 minute all at once, uh, you can have it done um, 20 minutes at a time. The key thing is to raise your heart rate about um, 60 to 80% of the maximum heart rate Again, like I said, start slow and go slow. Um, resistance and balance exercises, as I, as I stated, are essential 
for prevention and management of osteoporosis falls and fractures. Now we're going to switch to diet. So what's a healthy diet? Again, we all read about uh, the different dietary regimens that are out there. Um, Atkins diet, South Beach diet, low-carb, low-calorie diet. Um, really, and then also there is the Mediterranean diet and the modified Mediterranean diet, um, the vegetarian and the vegan diet and all those things. And the key thing really is um, what they all have in common is that essentially you have to eat a rich diet that's rich in fruit and vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and moderate in polysaturated fatty acids and omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids are very proven to be very essential for um, um, heart function and um, also cardioprotective. So, and, and they are present, um, someone said in fish oil, but they are also present in um, uh, guacamole and other things. So uh, definitely, you know, seek them out. Uh, certain nuts also have omega-3 fatty acids. Um, they are also so uh, other things, it's, um, it should be moderate in protein and dairy product um, and low in carbohydrates. This is a key because most of us don't realize that when we are drinking that fruit juice or soda, it, we don't realize, we think it's just a drink, but actually it is saturated with carbohydrate and it is, I say, the bad carbohydrate. So try to avoid drinking fruit juice and sodas because they are really bad for you. I'd much rather see you eating fruits and vegetables and drinking water, um, flavored water will be much better. Also, um, it's recommended to eat a diet that's low in cholesterol and saturated fatty acids such as animal fat and fried food. Um, diet versus supplemental medications. So if you are eating healthy diet, there is really no necessity for supplemental medications. However, if you're not, um, I do recommend usually multivitamin uh, with the minerals. Um, antioxidants, um, there's been some studies recently that looked at antioxidants actually and found that they may have a detrimental effect if they are taken in a supplemental form as opposed to taken in a dietary form. So if you are eating blueberries, it's great because they are full of antioxidants. But if you take them as supplements, they may actually affect your lipid profile and cardiac health in an adverse way. So be careful, and I do tend to recommend for my patients not to take multivitamins with antioxidants because, they, because of that uh, effect. Um, same thing actually applied to vitamin E, and vitamin E in general also does increase the risk of bleeding, especially if you are on aspirin, so again, be careful with vitamin E supplements. Um, in regard to calcium and vitamin D, um, if you are take, so the recommendations at the present is to take about 1,200 uh, milligram of, of calcium and 400 units of international unit of vitamin D. If you are um, spending enough time in the sun and you eat a diet that's rich in um, calcium, um, so three servings per day, what I mean by three servings, say three different kinds of uh, yogurt or one glass of milk and two different kinds of yogurts or in any combinations or cheese, then you really don't need to take calcium and vitamin D supplements. Um, and actually, it's, um, there has been also recent studies that showed um, um, calcium is uh, much better metabolized um, through dietary sources than through supplemental sources. So, um, so now we're going to shift gears to weight. Um, it has been also proven recently, or it's been actually, this is a common knowledge, but I guess there has been more recent data to also show this, that maintaining normal weight throughout life and with slight increase in weight as we get older is associated with lower mortality rate. Um, but keep in mind, um, 
high BMI, meaning in the obesity range, is actually associated with poor quality of life and increased morbidity. And obesity itself is associated actually with increased incidence of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and recently there's been more than 300,000 deaths attributed each year to obesity. So it's a significant um, problem that we're facing as a nation. Also, weight is associated with increased incidence of cancer. Um, there are so many different cancers that I, I listed them here, but essentially um, there is some correlation between weight and cancer. Uh, so again, just to keep in mind that excess weight is really um, detrimental. Now we're going to talk briefly about cognitive function. Again, from recent studies, and I recently attended a conference in um, San Diego um, that actually touched on several of these areas. But really, what's been shown to have some effect on cognitive function is having a purpose in life, staying busy with family, friends, and community, and leisure activities. Uh, one of the researchers actually said, if you, there is not enough um, time that you can say, oh, this is enough to spend with family. Spend as much time as, you know, eight hours a day, and that still be very good. It correlates well with cognitive function. Um, again, eating healthy, achieving high educational level. That may actually improve neuronal reserve. Um, what I mean by that, again, because you develop more neurons, um, it is um, harder for the brain to lose that, um, um, it's even with Alzheimer and mild cognitive impairment. And then maintaining mental exercises. I think part of that is your brain is as plastic as the rest of your body. So if you are going to exercise your muscles, you will develop bigger muscles. If you're going to exercise your brain, you're going to develop bigger brain. So just keep that in mind. Um, also controlling the risk factors for cognitive functions. So dementia is not only Alzheimer dementia, but there are other areas like vascular dementia. There is um, 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 uh, Lewy body dementia and other things. But especially with vascular dementia, I think um, we, uh, we still don't know very much about it, but I think it's, it's important to control the risk factors for it which are high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes. Now we're moving actually to a concept um, that I thought is um, um, important for me to cover because um, not many people are aware, about it, uh, aware of it, but um, I think it's um, uh, important to recognize. Uh, so what is a frailty? A frailty essentially is a term used to describe older people who are in an unstable condition. Who, ha who are at risk of actually developing a lot of adverse outcomes, um, including um, institutionalization, uh, disability, falls, and even death. Um, once a person is at that stage of frailty, there is very little that can be done to reverse it. And in most cases, we end up actually just doing um, conservative management and um, basically um, interventions to uh, prevent uh, further morbidity. So there is also, uh, in those cases, in those patients, there is a decrease in organ function. In general, um, heart, kidney, and lungs, and liver all are um, impaired and at risk of failing. So how a person reaches there? Um, in general, um, a person may develop a heart or a vascular or a cardiovascular disease, stroke, or anything related to that. There may be a cognitive decline. There may be loss of muscle mass. Osteoporosis also contribute to it. In all those cases, there is a um, decrease in mobility and endurance. If you see in all cases, there, it leads to essentially decrease in function. 
um, osteoporosis, sarcopenia, lead to hip fracture, lead to decreased function. Cognitive decline could also lead to decreased function. And in general, they all lead to frailty. What, what I'm hoping to, by introducing this concept, is to emphasize the importance of intervening at this stage. So if a person has cardiovascular disease or any element of cognitive decline, um, or loss of muscle mass or osteoporosis is to work really hard at reversing those processes or maintaining them at a steady state to prevent functional decline. Like I said initially, I think functional status is of paramount importance to maintaining health. A person who has good functional status will live much healthier and also much longer, um, and we see the effect of it um, day in and day out. So, Hopefully, by intervening early on, we can prevent frailty from happening. So what kind of screening test a person may get um, to do some of this work um, or to prevent, to prevent some of those problems? Um, this is just the basic screening that we do for um, the geriatric persons that we see in clinic. So um, in addition to the general screening test like lipid and glucose, um, I tend to actually look for um, reversible causes of um, cognitive impairment, such as um, uh, thyroid hormone. Um, and then um, vitamin D, I tend to also check it because I think it not only affects the uh, bone health, but also affects uh, muscle function and um, neuronal function. Um, so those are, I put a question mark against PSA because there is a lot of controversy about it, controversy about it right now in the literature. Again, keep in mind, this is a basic list, so if you have diabetes or heart disease or any kind of lipid abnormalities, there are a lot more testing that need to be done um, beside those ones. Um, for when it comes to cancer screening, I wanted to emphasize the importance of um, making that decision individualized um, to your particular case uh, or your loved one's particular case. Um, so. We all have seen the guidelines probably and read the conflicting evidence between the American Cancer Society and the American College of Physicians and the American Gastroenterology and they all have their own way of um, determining at what age should be, you know, we should make the cutoff for a certain or a particular screening test. Um, what I want to emphasize really is that um, you just have to look at um, your case and, and, and make it uh, case specific. So. Look at the risk of dying from that particular cancer, about the benefit of the screening test that you will get, the harms that you may get from the screening test, and also your own values and preferences. So for example, if you take um, uh, PSA, which we talked about initially, it's very controversial because an 80-year-old person who is healthy, who doesn't have any problem with prostate or not symptomatic, comes in and asks for a PSA check. Now, if I'm gonna check the PSA and it's gonna be 10 or 15, we're gonna have to go the next step, which includes um, getting a biopsy to diagnose if they have cancer or not. The biopsy by itself is very morbid. A lot of the men in this audience who've had the biopsy will know that it was not the most benign procedure that was done. And with that, they, we may find cancer. Now, if I find a cancer, a prostate cancer in an 80-year-old man who is completely asymptomatic, the value actually of treating that cancer is very controversial. Um, because on average, statistically speaking, there is about 50% chance that an 80-year-old person will have a prostate cancer and will die with that cancer, not from that cancer. So um, now, if we're gonna intervene and do a total um, 
a radical prostatectomy, removing the entire prostate, it will put that person at a much um, higher state of morbidity because they may develop urinary incontinence or other um, uncomfortable <laughs> symptoms. And so what we did essentially is we found a cancer that may not be the one that will kill that person, but we took it out and we put that person at a state of much higher morbidity. And so I'm not sure if that was really the most, you know, the, um, the right decision to make at that point. But, you know, um, so that's something to keep in mind when you are pursuing a screening test is how much benefit are you getting from that screening test? And what's the morbidity that comes with it? So um, now we switch gears to medications. Again, I wanted to emphasize the importance of um, or the effect of aging on medication metabolism. As we get older, our body composition changes. So we tend to have more um, fat than water because we lose the muscle mass, so we lose water with it. And with that, we actually retain medications longer in our body. And so that's where the effect of volume distribution increases. So, um, so we retain them longer. Also, there is a decline in uh, liver and kidney functions, which are the major areas for clearance of those medications. Um, so with that, um, again, we do retain those medications for longer. So keep that in mind when you are taking, um, especially medications that actually have um, uh, some effect on our cognition, like uh, benzodiazepines, like sleeping pills, uh, pain medications, because they tend to have a stronger effect in elderly compared to the younger um, population. Um, again, with increasing age, there is increased chance of being on more than three medications at a time. And so the chance of drug-drug interactions does increase. Now, I'm not going to recommend that if you are on five or six medications to stop them because some of you may really have to be on those medications for cardiac, you know, cardioprotective effect or for diabetes and other things. And the benefit of being on those medications outweigh any, you know, benefit of stopping them. But just keep in mind that um, always. Um, so keep in mind, general rule: always review your medication list with your doctor and always keep that list with you. Um, it's a key thing to know what the name of your medications, medications are. So don't just um, um, remember that I take the red pill and the white diamond-shaped pill, because most of the time I will not know what the red pill means or the diamond, white diamond-shaped pill means. Um, so it's really, really important just to keep that list with you at all times. Um, also, I include with the medication list um, herbal and over-the-counter medications um, because a lot, of, a lot of us don't look at those as um, having any medicinal value, but they do, and they do interact with a lot of the medications that we take. Um, that's also very, very true if you are taking something like um, Comedin, a blood thinner, which does have a lot of interactions with um, so many herbs and medications and food items. Uh, that's very true also for statins and also for other medications like amiodarone. The list is, goes on, but you got the idea. Um, now we're going to shift gears to home safety. And um, what I mean by home safety is, so you have that lovely elderly person, you're grandpa or grandma with you at home or your husband or wife and want to make home as safe as possible. The key things is to address the disabling conditions that could make the um, environment unsafe. And when I say that is really um, try to make sure that you're managing urinary stool incontinence 
um, if the person has arthritis, any gait instability, uh, if they've fallen in the past, is to make sure that that's been addressed by their primary caregiver, that uh, the home is made safer by getting physical therapists out to the home and um, making sure that rug is out of the way, that table is out of the way, and that you know a person can use a walker, for example, or a cane while they're ambulating around the house. Um, it's also very important to maintain the functional status of a person. Again, going back to the functional status, I can't stress how important that is. Um, so a person who has dementia does not mean they are unable to exercise. It's actually really, really important to get that person out of the house at least 40 minutes a day, five days a week, and get them to walk and do simple exercise because that's really important in maintaining their functional status. The, least, the last thing you want to do is to have that person sitting at home and watching TV or sleeping for that matter. And then um, always consult with your physician. So we can actually easily um, send a team of uh, physical therapists and occupational therapists out to your home and that probably will be covered under your insurance, um, especially if the person has Medicare, which most of the elderly population does. And they can do a lot. They can actually make recommendations about getting uh, adjustable like toilet seats, uh, bathroom bars, etc. So, and then, like I said, maintaining independence. So maintaining exercise, muscle strength, um, that's also very, very important. Preventing and managing osteoporosis, as we talked about earlier. Um, use it, using assistive devices when needed, like a walker, a cane. Um, and um, if you are a person who's living alone, it's really important to get um, something like Lifeline because that will um, make you safe and be connected. And also reach for the community. There is a lot of services out there, like Outreach, Meals on Wheels, et cetera. So don't hesitate to talk to your primary care physician about those services because they're out there for you. So in summary, so successful aging can be achieved by adequate exercise, diet, and healthy lifestyle maintaining friends, family close, and by indulging in frequent leisure activities and controlling chronic disease processes. I thank you all for your patience and for listening, and I will entertain your questions. That's a very question. I don't really know why, uh, but there's been several studies now out there that actually showed they may have a detrimental effect on lipid profile. And one major study that I can quote um, was uh, done in patients who have already coronary artery disease who were on um, lipid lower in medications like statins and actually taking niacin, uh, which is a, another uh, vitamin supplement. And it shows that those patients who were on the three agents, statin, niacin, and antioxidants, did much poorer than the ones, or you know, poorer than the ones who were on niacin and statin combination. The one who were on niacin and statin did significantly better. So that was in secondary outcomes. Now in primary outcomes, um, there has been also several studies in uh, younger patients. Um, there may be increased risk of bleeding, increased risk of um, um, mostly really bleeding that were looked at and things like that. So I, th that's why I tend to shy actually from recommending antioxidants as supplement. And the, the reason for that, and this is all speculation, may be the fact that we are in a form of supplement, you take them at a much larger dose than you know, when you take them in a form of dietary um, way, like you know, fruits and vegetables. So.
it's actually a very good question. Um, so I take back the age. Um, at the present time, uh, believe it or not, actually we don't recommend PSA um, to any age group. As a matter of fact, there's been a recent study that showed um, there is no correlation between PSA and prostate cancer. So if I check a 50-year-old non-PSA uh, and their PSA comes to be 1.2, um, that doesn't mean they don't have a prostate cancer. On the contrary, they actually certainly could have it. Um, so there has been no correlation because that was done on people on, in a randomized study where they looked at the PSA level and the and the volunteers who volunteered to have a biopsy done, and they found that people with a very low PSA still had um, prostate cancer. So at the present, we actually don't recommend PSA um, screening for prostate cancer. No, that's a, another really good question. So every time you pres we prescribe a medication, um, we do look at the benefit and the risk from the medication. And hopefully when we do prescribe a medication because we determine that, you know, the benefit outweighs the risk. Um, however, there is always um, a risk when you are taking a medication. So um, one medication will, that will help, help, for example, your blood pressure may have a detrimental effect on the kidney function. Um, what we try to minimize, what we try to do to minimize that effect is to, by having you be sequined periodically to make sure that you don't develop the side effects or the unwanted effects of that medication. So if a medication does have an effect on the kidney function, we do check kidney function at a much uh, um, more frequent uh, rate than you know, an average person who is not on any medication, just to make sure that that side effect will not happen. Same thing with statins, for example. We look at the liver function constantly uh, because we do know that they may affect uh, liver function um, in the long term. Um, by the way, Tylenol is also one of those medications that we tend to think about it as being a benign medicine, but recently it's been also shown that it has a cumulative effect on the liver, so not only an instant effect. We know if you take more than four grams a day, for example, if you're not drinking, um, it may, that's the maximum limit, but also in the long run, if you're taking it every day, every day, every day, it does have a cumulative effect. So people who are on certain medications, we tend to screen them more frequent for uh, to make sure that they don't have the side effect that um, is generated usually by that medicine. <laughs> it's not been proven. Um, there is a lot of um, theoretical data about ginkgo biloba. So it does help with cerebral perfusion. People who take it, they say they do actually have some improvement in their mood, uh, but those are anecdotal and there has not been a randomized controlled trial. Um, I mean by that, taking people who are on ginkgo biloba and comparing them to one who are not taking it, that's shown a benefit. I don't have anything per se against it, but make sure that if you are on other medications is to have it one across, because to make sure that there is no drug-drug interaction, especially if, you are on, if a person is on antidepressant, for example, it does potentiate their effect and may actually potentiate also the side effect. So keep that in mind anytime you are taking any supplemental medication.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.